Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for feature guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Well, today on the Group Dynamics Dispatch, I'm incredibly excited to interview Dr. Larry Mordazavi. Dr. Mordazavi was born in Tehran, Iran, where he completed medical school at Shahid Beheshti University. He immigrated to Canada in 2002 and then completed a general psychiatry residency program at Baylor College of Medicine in 2014 in Houston, Texas. Concurrent with his psychiatry residency, he started his child psychoanalytic training at the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies in Houston, where he is now an advanced candidate in child psychoanalysis. Also, during his residency in Houston, Dr. Mordazavi joined the Houston Group Psychotherapy Society. His current appreciation and interest in group therapy is rooted in the robust group training, supervision, and group facilitation that he received from the Houston Group Psychotherapy Society. He became a certified group therapist in 2015, and after completing his residency, Dr. Mordazavi moved to New Haven, Connecticut, and began his child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at Yale School of Medicine at the Yale Child Study Center. After graduation in 2016, Dr. Mordazavi and his wife moved to and have settled in Denver. He enrolled in an adult psychoanalytic training at Denver Psychoanalytic Institute, where he is a candidate. He began a private practice in Littleton, where he practices psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis with children, adolescents, and adults, as well as running psychoanalytically informed process groups. In addition to the private practice, he is a lecturer and supervisor at the Child Psychiatry Program at Anschutz Medical Campus at the University of Colorado. Dr. Mordazavi has also been a board member at the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society since 2018, and he is the host of a training that we're all very excited about at Four Corners called How to Play and Process Groups a workshop for utilizing psychoanalytically and existentially oriented activities to enhance cohesion and process groups. Well, welcome to the podcast, Larry. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, excited to have you here today. So first off, I wanted to see if you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this field and how you found psychoanalysis and how you found group. Right. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> but kind of by, by chance, uh, to be honest with you. Between my graduation in 2002 
uh, and you know, the time I started my residency, there's a, like a gap, like about six to eight years. And in those years, basically what I did was uh, general psychiatry research in Toronto, in Brisbane, Australia, you know. So I thought that I'm going to be like just a, you know, maybe academic, scholarly psychiatrist. Um, I, I, you know, did research on early psychosis, uh, on emergency, psych- psychiatric emergencies. Um, even some neuroimaging for bi- uh, bipolar mood disorder, things like that. So uh, when I started my residency at Baylor, I just like, I thought that I'm pretty set. I know what I want and where I'm going. Yeah, by the end of first year in my residency, it just like, it, it didn't uh, deliver what I thought it was going to. So, you know, you, you go to the emergency room. And you have like really stressed patients or like really sick. And then I realized that there's something is missing in, in just like I'm getting angry or I'm getting sad or um, sometimes I'm very helpful to some patients. Sometimes I'm like very reluctant to see it. So it's so much dynamic is going on. And then like, you know, that's, that's the way it is. But majority of times the sickest patients are in the emergency room with the most naive psychiatrists, the first year resident, you know, like, like myself. So something was missing and it just like, um, I felt that uh, I need more. And, uh, so at the same time, you know, like the Houston Center for Psychoanalytic Studies at that time was called Houston Galveston Psychoanalytic School or something like that. They, they were at, at, uh, accepting applications for child program. And child program was perfect for me because, uh, all the classes, uh, uh, you know, were held on Saturdays that I could kind of like find a way to go. Um, and I started the, my, my training on, you know, when, when I started my second year of residency. And it, it was a revelation, you know, like I thought, wow. Uh, the first six months was very hard. I can remember like, you know, reading the psychoanalytic text and material. It's just like, it's not the same. And I still, I, I see it. I try to remind myself of those six months because when I teach, uh, you know, psychodynamic or psychoanalytic, classes with uh, psychiatric residents or child fellows, I see that, uh, you know, I assign papers or, you know, it's, it's in the uh, syllabus and they're like lost. They just don't understand why I need to read a paper that was written in 1954 or even 1912 or something like that. And the language is very different, you know, like, so um, after you get the language and start understanding what's going on, I can remember those Saturdays they were the best part of my second year residence. You know, just like a fresh breath of uh, ideas and looking at things in a very different way. And uh, so that was a hook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like all and, of a sudden you were being encouraged to relate to patients and clients from a totally different vantage point. Yes. You know, and then uh, you you have to get your own therapy and supervision and uh, it, it it was really helpful for me, you know, like I, I think that I've been in therapies and analysis uh, for the last six years, and it's been tremendously helpful for my own benefit, you know, self um, growth and uh, sorting out things from my own childhood. And so you, know, you get like lots of benefit, but it's just like the whole looking at things from a completely different point of view that is being advocated by the organic psychiatry or biological psychiatry, that's the whole point. 
um, there is a there is a significant amount of uh, pressure on residents and fellow to look at psychiatric uh, you know diagnosis and psychiatric diseases the same way we are looking at the medical issues it just you know simply is not the way it should be and uh, it took me a while but uh, i remember like the first two years of uh, your residency you're so kind of anally obsessive about getting the right diagnosis is it general anxiety disorder or mostly separation anxiety you know like is it bipolar type one or type two and then you realize that this is just like it doesn't make any sense it's not really helpful it's so reductionistic and uh, my depression is different from yours his depression is different from another person um, and looking at psychiatric uh, diseases the same way we are looking at medical issues it just it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a <laughs> how can i say it without being too, too uh, strong using a too strong language but it's just like it, it's not the way it should be and it, it hasn't uh, delivered you know uh, we've been doing it for the last 40 years and look around i always use that example with my patients so, okay think about antibiotics how many people right now die, specifically young ones, of gangrene. Not that many, very few. During the Civil War, that was the number one cause of this, or even World War One and World War Two, right? Because antibiotics are very effective. They do what they need to do. So you can see it on the epidemiologic uh, scale, like the impact of that. The infections are, you know, of course, now we have superbugs and all of that, but in general, um, we've been prescribing more than ever like best estimate is like one out of five, five Americans uh, uh, is on some sort of antidepressant psychotropic medication. Do we have less depression, less anxiety, less substance use, less violence? It's just like it's not there, you know. So, um, and still, it's it's more push for more prescription, prescribing even more, more prescriptions, like. Um, so nurse practitioners have started prescribing. Now there's a push for psychologists to, to prescribe. And it's just like it doesn't do what uh, they promised uh, they're going you know, to deliver, like in terms of like the benefit for the patient. At this, usually they're like dampening the symptoms. Uh, and sometimes they're really life-saving. I'm, I'm, I'm prescribing. It's not like I stopped prescribing. That. But uh, the focus has changed uh, from creating that relationship and having this kind of a uh, more psychological understanding of human mind to a very biological, that is just, our science is not there and it, it has not delivered what we needed. Like it seems like the initial training was really all about trying to, I mean, really emphasizing, if anything, the diagnosis and the prescription rather than first orienting to the person that was sitting across from you and what was happening for them emotionally and then what was happening relationally between the two of you. And it sounds like there was something about studying psychoanalysis that really began to bring that more into the forefront. Right, on, on both sides, like not just about my patient, what's going on with me. Right. You're right. And the system is designed to, again, advocate that. Like, you know, Baylor is is not exactly an organic biological program, you know, it's a, at least the time I was a resident there. And Gabbard is a, still is a faculty there. We had lots of training in psychodynamics. But the, the system is designed for this kind of uh, 
brief interactions between the psychiatrists and lets the therapist would take care of the rest of it, which, which is like splitting the treatment and uh, all sorts of issues that I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Maybe it's not. There, you know, I can, I, can, yeah, I can talk about it forever. Mm-hmm. Well, it's clearly something that you're passionate about. And I think as a lot of the listeners of the podcast know, there's a way that we are encouraged in traditional education to approach uh, people that are suffering as well as our own experience that is actually really distancing and detrimental versus taking much more of an approach that's focused on the relationship and there being room for both us as therapists or analysts and the patient. And, you know, understanding uh, uh the symptoms, the, the way you understand, conceptualize, and formulate the symptoms. Mm. Uh, what I'm trying to say. Uh, you see that, like, let's say ADHD. The prevalence of ADHD in the United States is about 9 to 10%, 9 to 12%, something like that. So, one out of 10 uh, child in, the, in this country is being diagnosed with ADHD. When you go to Canada or the UK, the number will drop to 3 to 4%. In France, less than 1%. So what's going on? Like the, the French people don't become like ADHD, don't get, it's just like the way you explain the symptoms. Like when I see a child who's like restless and having difficulties with the organization and constantly on move and can't listen and low argumentative and define, uh, you can just say, oh, this is ADHD, looking at it as a very kind of an organic thing and then prescribe a stimulant. That's been happening here. Or you can think about it, oh, maybe these are like defenses for this child. This child has, has a hard time to be here and now. So it's constantly moving, not being here and now, you know, like the, the attention, the, the body, everything moves not to deal with the cruel, cruel reality of being here and now. And then you can see there's a, like a trauma. You can see there's like difficulties in attachment and everything. So if you see that, then... This is not ADHD. This is like a savvy kid who utilizes the best defenses he can in order to deal with a very stressful environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in, in the analytic treatment, you really began to become more um, aware of and understanding of the different defenses that are in place and how those are actually helping a person to manage some of the stimulation they're experiencing in their bodies and in their minds. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. part of it, yes. How did you end up uh, getting into group? Right, uh, right. I think that group is also started on the second year, kind of like second year of my residency. So Houston has, a, at least at that time, again, I'm, I'm not sure what happened. Um, I graduated about uh, five, six years ago, so some things has changed. But uh, at that time, there was a very good uh, collaboration between uh, Houston Group Psychotherapy Society and the residency programs. So they did, we did our own group between, among residents. It was like 13 of us. And then, and it was again, it was fantastic and it's very helpful and uh, created some dynamics that I, I hadn't seen in my individual work with patients. So, um, and I think that I'm a kind of a social person, so it's <laughs> just like it was a good fit. And I, I, I can say that, you know, that's the part I can say. If uh, people are supportive and welcoming and, you know, and patient uh, with you, there's, there's always room for growth. Because I would say that I wasn't that interested in group, but then like there, you get lots of support and mentorship and supervision, just like they kind of like, 
you know, attract you and lure you in, into this whole situation. And then all of a sudden you're just you're not doing it. Right. You're hooked. Exactly. Yeah. So I know that you really um, practice psychoanalytically and psychodynamically informed process groups. Would you say a little bit about how you see that and what that means for you? Right. Uh, you know, yeah, it's a very good question. I, I wish I had a very good answer to that. So let's try and see how it goes. Um, I'm, I'm, I think that when I'm running a group that is psychoanalytically oriented, I'm constantly trying to refine my listening skills. So it's just like, I think that what I'm learning more and more as I'm getting more experience is like how to listen, how to listen with what is said and with what is not said and uh, how it's connected to the unconscious, how it's connected to childhood experiences and how it's connected to here and now among us. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, if someone's, I'm, I'm sure your audience's listeners are, what are you talking about? It's very hard to describe. It's very hard to describe what exactly happens, but uh, that's that happens. Uh, uh, bringing unconscious to conscious and listening. Yeah. Well, what comes to mind for me when you're saying that is just um, the quality of listening that you're bringing to the situation, and then what happens both inside of you as you're listening, mm -hmm. and then what is able to end up unfolding in the group. There's such a kind of unconscious interconnection between those two things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I'm constantly checking with myself. Why I'm feeling suddenly sad. Why I want to jump in and interrupt the patient. You know, why, why I'm so bored. Uh, so th these are like checking with myself and also what's going on with my patients. You know, the patterns that would emerge during the session. Like how the, when, when is the time the patient starts talking? That specific patient usually doesn't say anything up to like 20 minutes into the group. Why? That the other patient is always, uh, you know, quiet till very end. You know, and what they say, you know, like you, you can start seeing the patterns uh, of uh, how they relate to themselves and to us mm -hmm. and to me as a group leader, right? So, yeah, I think that that's part of it. And maybe a different, I, mean, I, I don't think that it's that different between uh, like a very usual process group and more analytically oriented. But, uh, and of course, the, the power of interpretations, you know, interpretations that are meant to unveil unconscious. And sometimes I get it right and sometimes I don't. And that also is interesting when I don't get it right. Mm -hmm. Something happened between us that I couldn't listen. Yeah. yeah. Well, and um, I was also thinking, I mean, I think that's something about taking that really relational approach is even when we uh, get an, or especially when we get an interpretation wrong for people that use interpretations, it it at least is really showing or conveying to the group member or to the group that it's a collaborative process and that in correcting us, uh, they're actually having an impact on us. That's correct. And sometimes they don't correct us. And that's, that's, uh, you know, you, you need to be a good therapist to realize that something happened, a, a yes. pause, maybe a silence, maybe a withdrawal that uh, <laughs> you didn't get it right and you have to go there again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I was also just thinking about um, the ways in which 
by emphasizing listening, mm-hmm. it seems like you're really uh, kind of prioritizing taking a, a just a stance of curiosity. Mm-hmm. It means really not know. Yeah, and empathy. Yes. Yes. Which really is, it seems like uh, taking the approach of not knowing and then there really being room for the unconscious to express itself. Exactly. You know, uh, my challenge is, uh, and something I'm working on, I'm kind of like every day when I go to my practice, how I can understand my patients' experiences, like, you know, in a kind of more empathic way. And how can I, I can make meanings of something that sounds like ordinary or crazy, insane. And uh, that's not easy, you know. There, there are always a, a blockage in me or in my patient or both. And uh, um, if I, I give you an example. So I, I read lots of analytical material. I'm a candidate, right? So every week, uh, except for the summer, which I'm supposed to read, but that's a different story. So I read like... Speaking uh, of blockages. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and then every every author you, you read, you can, you can see that you connect with some of them. Some of them are really hard to connect. Um, a very good example that it came to my mind. Usually, I connect very well with the French analysts. Uh, you know, I have a little bit of a French background and all of that. It, it makes sense to me. Like uh, when people, uh, like you know, in the U.S., they, they have a very hard time to understand the car. It wasn't that hard for me. Or uh, you know, Laplanche and very kind of methodic way of looking at psychoanalysis. Right? I love it. I can understand it, and I can. Then I read uh, MacDougall. MacDougall sounds like you know Scottish or something, but she's French. She, she's married to a British guy or Scottish guy. And uh, in her material, there is a craziness that is so scary to me. I just like just like how why you go there, and how you can is it like fiction or is it real? Because she has such a way, especially exploring sex and sexuality. Just she goes to places with. Her patients, that is very scary to me. So that's a blockage. I can't really go there. I get anxious. I don't want to read it. I, I read it, but I dismiss it, you know. And I see some uh, more advanced um, analysts uh, that uh, they, they love it. They love everybody because, you know, they, are, they feel much more secure than me to go to those places. So every time you have a patient, uh, that's a challenge. Can you go there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to what extent can we really allow ourselves to just enter that sort of terrain with them and to work with our own disturbance that's coming up? Absolutely. And make meaning of that. You know, right. like eventually, now we're talking a little bit Lacanian, I'll bring it to the symbolic from the real, which is quite raw, emotional, to imaginary, to imaginary, which is not imaginary in the way we think about it. Maybe it's. Uh, Translating, but it's something that now the images are coming, but it's not, it's not a still language, it's not a still symbolic. But once it's being uh, uh, released in uh, symbolic, which means language, connection to signifiers, then we, we are working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to get there. Sometimes. Well, it absolutely is. And I was just thinking about those moments in group where we feel overwhelmed or distressed or just noticing a tremendous amount of our own anxiety, confusion about what's happening in the group. And I was wondering if, if you have any uh, thoughts or reflections on those kind of moments for you and how you typically understand them or work with them. 
Um, I, I think that uh, it's, it's really different case by case, group by group, right? Like what's going on? It's just like, uh, I think I was scared. <laughs> like definitely when it's so chaotic, I was scared. Uh, but again, I, I try to see if anything can come out of that. You know, I keep the curiosity and empathy as uh, upfront as possible. Um, and maybe that's a good part we can talk about frame. You know, the analytical work also is a lot about frame because frame creates a, a kind of a matrix for interpretations. So uh, the whole like, you know, group contract uh, that, uh, you know, Kernberg would say that is there to be violated so you can work on. You know, group contract, the timing, what, we, how will you do it? It creates this kind of a safety that um, when I see that, like, you know, the, the frame is going to be uh, really stressed and pressured to the point like it might break, then I, I do some more maybe radical uh, actions in the group. You know, pause the group, stop the process, or ask people to take a deep breath, something like that. Uh, but uh, if the frame is solid, I let them just uh, do the work. Mm -hmm. Almost like if the group's going along, then the last thing you want to do is intrude or be too uh, um, disruptive to it. Right. You know, aggression is so valuable. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm wondering if you'd say more about that as well as you keep um, talking about interpretation. And interpretation is one of those words that I think gets used frequently, and then people have different ideas about what they actually mean by it. So I was wondering <laughs> if you might say a little bit more about both how you see interpretation and, and then the ways that you're using interpretation as a group leader. Um, right. You know, interpretations are meant to uncover unconscious material. You know, that, that's the difference in a, in a very uh, kind of like a simple definition. That's the difference between interpretations or like something like clarifications or reassurance or things like that. Interpretation is going to unreveal something that is coming from unconscious. So majority of times means that you are going to jab your patient. Majority of times you need to know that what's the dosage of that. If it's too much, definitely is not helpful. Sure, you can come up with a very clever interpretation and this right on. But it has no help whatsoever and sometimes harm to your patient if it's not uh, delivered on timely manner. Is it the right time to say that? And also how harsh it can be, you know, if it's, it's stripped from the empathy and understanding. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't respect the defenses. So we still haven't uh, talked about interpretation by itself, but I'm just saying that it, it, it's all in one combo, you know. So... Um, and I try not to interpret as as uh, as much as I can, you know, because uh, interpretation is a disturbance in the system. So it should be only utilized then when the just like medication or something like when the benefits by far outweigh, uh, you know, the the harm. And also having that in mind that the interpretation that is coming from you. It's not going to be that helpful that comes from the patient, you know. So, so sometimes I, I do the structure of work to help the patient get to what I already interpreted, but I didn't say it and I kept it to myself. You know? mm -hmm. So, uh, like, uh, for example, a very, uh, you know, simple example. 
I have a patient that uh, grew up in a very difficult childhood. Parents uh, very strict, very strict super ego. Like you know, you're bad. Nothing is good enough. He would he would excel academically, but always he would uh, you know uh, fail something or he hasn't. Uh, Check that box. And so, so he developed a harsh superego that is constantly, you know, ingesting the parental voice. And, uh, you're having this harsh superego. Then you don't need the voice of parents any longer. They, they're there. You know, they're inside. And, uh, but uh, so another way of like, uh, parents would, they, they had a very hard time to let go of things. So basically two, two generations in a row, they were hoarders. And uh, what what he he's been doing? He has like thirteen cars, and he's working on those thirteen cars. So he would be very critical. He got some therapy, and so he would be very critical of his parents and then like and the way they treated him as a child and everything. But he has no idea that how much of his parents now live inside him, right? So he has like 13 cars that, uh, you know, he, he buys like old cars and tries to repair them. And sometimes he does. He has a hard time to sell them. So he's now hoarding cars, you know, and he can let go of that. And he can really afford a good, nice car, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't buy that. So if you can interpret these things, which I did like uh, incrementally during different sessions, he can say that, oh, okay. Part of it actually could be a strength, sublimation, you know, sublimation of, okay, I can fix the car and sell it, you know, why not? But part of it becomes a defense that uh, masochistically, I don't drive a good car for myself and I, I can let go of these cars. So that, that's kind of an interpretation that is rooted with the childhood experience that is happening again and again. And to be honest, like the patient is not aware of it. It sounds like, oh yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. No, when the patient heard it, he was shocked. Mm-hmm. Right. It's so, so it's so repressed and unconscious that it's like unbelievable. Right. So it seems like there's something with a good interpretation where there's almost an element of surprise, like a person mm-hmm. realizes or yeah. recognizes something happening for them that they hadn't realized before. And maybe there's a way in which it's containing, it helps them to feel better understood. And it, it seems like you're also addressing that sometimes um, if it's done without empathy or, or if there's kind of a relational quality that's missing, there can be a danger or a feeling of exposure, maybe a person knowing too much too soon. Exactly. You know, like patients gets like really worried that, oh, if you see that, what else you can see? Right. And, and, and I'm not sure if I'm ready to show all of that to you. So, and of course, it comes from the fantasies that the therapist is omnipotence and all of that, right? The other part of it, as you said, the element of surprise also can be seen in shame. So it's, it's just, you're not careful, you can shame your patient. Well, and I think that's an important kind of bridge to this other component of using interpretation in a group, because using interpretation in an individual setting is one thing. But I'm curious how you also see it using interpretation in a group setting and how you do that with an individual group member, how do you do that with a group? Because interpreting something in a room full of other people, I would imagine, really does have the risk of shame to it. And just Absolutely. curious, anything you might want to say as a group leader, how you manage that and how you use interpretations uh, in, in that kind of informed way. Right. So, you know, the example I use about interpretation this is done like almost a year into a group you know, uh, that 
now there's a kind of a coherence in the group. Group members care about each other. So bringing it that up, it, it wasn't, uh, hard, you know, creating shame or, you know, actually the other group members joined and, you know, they, they talk about some of these differences that they inherited from their own parents and they're so unaware of that. So, you know, you, you just do a little bit of individual work work with one group member and it can be expanded to everybody because we all do that. It's not just that group member that can use some differences that are uh, relics of the childhood differences and is being inherited transgenerationally. And the other part is like you're talking about now you're interpreting the group process. Now we are moving from more kind of a classical um, analytical work to more kind of a now it's kind of again classical, but maybe not Freudian classical, more object relations, right? We are, we are talking about um, beyond and his understanding of the group, or maybe more like a system-based uh, group process that, oh, uh, looks like today everybody wants to please me as the group reader. You know, so it comes a little bit from here, comes from uh, what's going on here, you know? So uh, primary assumptions and primary defenses, like, you know, and you can see that like a group in the formation process, it's like wants to get close to the leader. And as it groups moves on, uh, you, you can see more and more, uh, for example, uh, comparing and everybody against the group leader, let's kill the group leader and see. So you can all, it's, it's and this kind of a stuff are, are happening at all the time. You don't have to, by the way, interpret all of that publicly in the group. It's just like many of these things are, I can observe and see and I keep it to myself. I do the thinking for myself, not for the group if it's not helpful. And what there is stuff like can be very helpful when, uh, you know, aggression, for example, in the group comes out and uh, uh, is uh, the displacement of aggression on a specific group member uh, that uh, should be reserved for me as the group leader, but cannot be directed for whatever reason towards me and goes for the scapegoat, for example, things like that. So you, now you are interpreting unconscious in the group setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not about necessarily one individual. And that would be tremendously helpful. Well, when you were saying that, it seems like it goes back to what you were mentioning about listening and how important you see listening. And I was thinking that as you're there observing, listening, being curious about the group, maybe if, uh, being curious about the basic assumptions and how they're operating within the group, mm-hmm. there's really a way in which you're containing. Yes. Uh, uh, of course, from beyond we go to Vinicard, right? It's, it's always there. And yes, exactly. And containment and uh, providing opportunities for patients to do mirroring with the therapies and things like that. Also very, very important. And containing the also in a in more kind of a Winnicottian group process also is the space for experiment and play. Mm-hmm. So but if you are rigid as a therapist, uh, you, you won't uh, and your anxiety is dominating the group, it's just like it's not going to create enough for people to explore. Right, exactly. And it seems like, um, and that's something I've always appreciated about your work, Larry, is how much you put play really at the forefront. I mean, even it's in the, the title of your, the training group, how to play and process groups. So uh, would you say more about play, how you see it, how you understand it, and ways in which you try to facilitate group members being able to play with each other and you in a group? Sure. Um, 
you know, I, I need to give you a little bit of a background story. If you are a child psychoanalyst, it's, it's very different from being an adult analyst. You know, there's, there's, there are not that, that many, you know, rules or un- theoretical understanding when it comes to working with children. You, you just need to be there with the child and learn their language. Every child comes to the uh, PlayStation, you know, in one playroom and everything, has its own language, own unconscious. And, uh, you know, like, sure, with adults happens like that, but adults using language in a different way. And there are so much, like, layers of language. With children, it's like lots of action, action that needs to be translated into language. And uh, so as a as a child analyst, um, I'm... I'm, I'm very much open to different systems, you know. Um, there's a child I can connect with reading, you know, read a lot. You know, I just terminated an analytical case, and it was uh, all about it. two years of reading together uh, because the child just loved it. And the other kid is into video games. You don't play video games, but we talk about video games. So you see that they say you, you create an open system. In that open system, you have to be the most flexible possible. That's the way it is. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to work with the child and with the parents of the child. By the way, right. that that you need also to find like okay, you know, parents usually they're bringing, not usually, almost always they're bringing their own issues and own uh, trauma and all this stuff, right? And unfortunately, we like it or not, which most of the time they are not in therapy. They are not interested in getting therapy. And everything. So how you work that would be the most beneficial with the parent with the child child and with their parents you know so you you have to be very flexible and you, you can take that flexibility to a process group with adults that uh, provides you opportunities for let them play and explore and be messy a little bit and create a little bit noise or create break something and i'm talking metaphorically you know and see how it goes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. have the freedom to do all that Right, and uh, freedom and, as you said, containment, that at the end of the story, uh, I'm in charge, and no, you're not going to get hurt, and you're okay, and you're aggression. Again, what we're talking about more kind of an object relations uh, uh, theory, that you are contained, and your projections of aggression and all of that can be identified with, Without hurting you, I'm mm-hmm. not going to project it back at you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're safe here. Yes. Well, could you, I think that's such an important point, and, and it makes me wonder if you'd actually say anything more about how you see the relationship between aggression and play. Uh, well, you know, again, it's it's a very hard question. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm trying to say something meaningful that makes sense. Uh, at the, okay, if you're looking at it from a Freudian uh, background, you know, so there we are talking about the very primary drives, aggression and libido. And, you know, like, and there is also, there's also sometimes, uh, or very often there is something sexy about being aggressive and mm-hmm. dominant. So, and also something uh, that can be played into the group dynamic. So this aggression and, uh, you know, uh, 
libidinal drives that you can transfer into the play. And and there's a very alive relationship between the two. And it's a very safe one. This oh. is the part I would say that the play would use the what I see in working with children as the you know displaced. What what I children usually they are not comfortable to you know play for example with dogs or you know figurines and things like that. Specifically in the beginning, it's too close to us. It's too anxiety provoking. But children are very open to play, for example, with cars. So if the cars are getting crashed and, you know, destroyed and killed, it's okay. But if I take the car out and put a, like a small figure in there, oh, you know, we have a play interruption. But so th this play in general, and then we can eventually move from cars to maybe dogs and then maybe to people. But this displacement creates, and you, you have to do it, almost up to adolescent, you know, you create a displacement that is safe and you read it, you read it as a, as an analyst, but for the patient is just fine and can be done without creates too much anxiety. So that happens in the adult process group. If when they are playful, they are displacing some of the aggression in the play. They are displacing some of the libidinal drive into the play. And if you can create the containment and read it, actually, it's pretty safe. Mm -hmm. Well, and it seems like that's so much of what we're also doing in working with adults is working with their blockages to play and mm -hmm. their blockages yeah. around being messy and, and some of the mm -hmm. ways in which anxiety can create such a tightness in terms of how they relate to themselves and to the other group members and to us as leaders. Absolutely. You know, uh, very good point, Benjamin. I, I think that... Uh, we, we emphasize a lot, you know, eat, like libidinal or aggression and things like that. But majority of our patients are dealing with another part of unconscious, superego. The superego that is just doesn't let go and is quite rooted unconsciously. And uh, yeah, it kills all the opportunities for being messy or uh, being free. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, Thinking about the upcoming training group where you're talking a lot about play, it seems like you keep um, emphasizing um, cohesion and, and a, an important element of cohesion and the capacity to play. And I was wondering if you'd say a little bit more about cohesion, how you see it, as well as different ways in which as a group leader, you're looking at creating more of that. Right. Most of the activities uh, I'm going to present in this workshop are meant for the you know, the formation phase of the group. Uh, when people are new and the whole thing sounds like a foreign language. So it, these activities are meant to send different uh, messages to the group. One, you have an unconscious. Uh, two, you don't, you're not aware of that unconscious. <laughs> as much as we want to be the master of the house, you're not. And that's, by the way, by itself, as Lafange says, it's a very narcissistic idea, you know, like it's, it's quite narcissistic to us to understand that we have an unconscious that we're never going to master. We, we're going to understand, we're going to have encounters, but we're never going to master that unconscious. It's just there every minute of our life. And every time we put a conscious thought into our mind, there is something repressed into the unconscious too. So, but that's that's a quite a you know quite a narcissistic injury, a, a, a saddening fact 
that if we can again do it in a nice empathic way by using play, it might not be as harsh as it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we are here to explore that together. We are all part of, so this, you know, it just like creates a relationship. Oh, you, um, you know, like in your mind, and I'm here, me and my mind. And, and there are like some, some activities that are more meant for more kind of a philosophical existential process, like, which is, again, I think that in this country and our culture, we, we don't talk about this and that. Mm-hmm. We're so not okay with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, that makes me think about ways in which play can be um, really progressive and ways for us to explore new parts of ourselves and new parts of ourselves with other people. And then there's activity and group that can seem like play, but sometimes it's a flight from something else, kind of like what you're saying with death and dying or sickness or loss. Mm-hmm. And ways in which a group that can actually grieve together is sometimes the ways in which that opens up for much more expansive play where something else isn't being split off. Right. You know, so you're, you're right. The, the place, uh, these activities are meant to also kind of push the defenses a little bit. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're just, again, they're meant mostly for the formation phase of the group. Uh, I rarely use them and the group is functional, it's just like, then they, it can be done as a, like a defense and it's not helpful. But in the beginning, when people are really having a hard time, confused, what, what is this? You know, what, what we are going to do and what we are talking about is tremendously helpful. You know, it's, it's kind of a, and creates also uh, a mission for all the group members. Oh, we are here to explore that. It's mm-hmm. called unconscious. Mm-hmm. And it works a little bit like that. So it's a kind of a demo. Yeah. Well, it seems like during that formation phase, it, it is so much about building trust and almost like a group identity. You know, when you're saying like a we, there's a sense of a we, we're, we're in this together and we're going to play and be messy. And there's also maybe an implicit trust that gets developed that when things get really hard, we'll continue to relate and to talk about what's happening. Absolutely. You know, perfect. Um, it creates the opportunity for us to, for the group leader to uh, do a little bit interpretation, uh, emphasizing the frame and uh, sending the message, I can contain you, I can contain us, and uh, it's okay to be missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a sneak peek into any of these activities? Sure, you know, the, the, you know, the activities by itself are not that uh, you know, complicated. So, um, for example, one activity is uh, we have two uh, stand trays. One is wet, one is dry, big ones. And then we have about 120-something, 130 uh, miniatures, different items uh, from people to stones. to uh, So, and uh, I, I don't go through the details of that, but basically people pick and uh, talk about it and then place it in the... And tray, and I'm part of it. So you can see that, like how, for example, I put it in the dry sand, and how people do it in dry sand, or they get like how how much of distance? Why? What's going on? So something that sounds pretty uh, simple, and they think that they talked about it. You know, oh no, I, I they say that oh I I just wanted to be far from you, and that's why I put it there, right? So it's it's not exactly unconscious sometimes, but then you can ask a question. Like, why that far? 
why why not going to another tray you know like it's just like it and it's not like i know all the answers not at all it just like is an opportunity for being curious and again explore the unconscious that is not available to you you think that oh yeah i put i picked this figurine that's the reason or this miniature and i put it there for this reason and then once once we start talking you can see how much material never occurred Mm-hmm. How much emerges from that? It's right. Yeah. And also, like, how we create a relationship. Like, I can say that, like, every time two people like the same object, who's going to get it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, and where we place it. And then I do some other tricks in, in that. Like, I come and change my object and say, okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So it's start over, you know? So that's well, it seems like, like cool ways of starting to work with competition and collaboration and some of those pieces. And object relations, like mm-hmm. what we internalize, what we what we digest. Mm-hmm. So do do you actually in your ongoing process groups, do you actually use Santray and some of these different things? I do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Will, will you say more about it? Like uh sure. how do you and when you know when you might use it as an intervention in a group and what just right. what that looks like? Sure, you know, like I do it all the time in the beginning of my groups, like for the first five sessions, five to ten sessions. So, and then they, they talk about it. They, but then I stop. I stop till we have a new group member or someone is leaving and then the whole sanctuary will come back. Oh, really? So it's, it's really a way of kind of marking these transitions, both coming in and then a leaving or uh, separating. Right. And also bring it to their attention. That uh, you know the translation of the unconscious that is usually is very hard. You know, I create a, a a vehicle, a little bit of a facilitation to be expressed. Leaving is hard. Is there any you know ex- externalization of that in that? And that people can remember. Oh yeah, you're you're leaving us, and you had that specific sanctuary figure or miniature and and they can create it but yes i you're right it also can work as like a you know, highlighting or putting a book bookmark in that specific those specific sessions and i think that again uh, separation and saying goodbye is something we don't work on at all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, kind of appreciating the ways that you really, uh, use play just from the very beginning in terms of addressing some of those different things. Yeah. And, and it's fun and people love it. And they're, they're, you know, when they're coming to the, this process group and, uh, you know, more analytically, even though most of them are being like at least in therapy a year or two or something, they're horrified that, okay, um, before coming here, even if it was something was interpreted or, you know, being discussed, at least it was between my analyst and I. Now, how about all other these people? What are they going to know about it? It is just like significantly a scary experience. And if you're not scared, then you don't get it. You know, you're not understanding what you're stepping into. But most of these group members, they, they basically, they know what's going on. So play, it's just so, uh, alleviate would alleviate that anxiety so nicely and i keep going for about five to ten sessions mm-hmm. will you, you do know, that the whole session or just a portion of the session a portion of the session i just uh, do it in the beginning and at the end mm-hmm. are there other activities or forms of play you use in group 
Yeah, like, you know, like another activity I use uh, sometimes is, you know, there, there's a, it's, it's, it's in more bigger groups. And usually these are like groups that maybe meant for a day or two training groups, things like that. A piece of paper, uh, we, we throw it away. I'm, I'm not part of it in this one. And uh, you call a name. And if the person can catch the paper, uh, calls the, someone else's name, right? If they can, they make it in half and put the half, up, you know, remove the half, and then keep going. Till, again, you can see that people, why we call that person's name 10 times and nobody called the other guy. Uh, people get anxious about what happened to the half of the paper is not uh, used, you know, are we going to throw it away, you know, like the attachment stuff would come up. Um, why that, you know, when I'm throwing it, uh, I, I just do it very close to the floor so I, <laughs> nobody can catch it. Or why I just do it in a way that I make sure someone can catch it. You know, all of that, you know, it's this process mm-hmm. and it's quite unconscious. Right, it kind of stimulates all those different dynamics that are in the room. Right. Um, yeah, and it's like it's, it's a way of connecting. Then we we gonna you know understanding. Oh, there's a pairing is going on here, or we have a scapegoat, or we have a invisible member. You know, all of that. Um, and you know another activity sometimes is being done again mostly object relations. It's like uh, you uh, ask people. Write down one thing about themselves that they think that they are in the group. Like one would say that I'm the king, the other one I'm the clown, the other one I'm the uh, caretaker. And they, they write it in kind of a paper uh, hats and uh, then we mix it up and you have a hat, but you can see what is there. That other group members need to kind of like a charade. They need to help you to get that. Uh, like what is it? And you can see that uh, lots of defenses would come out and uh, people have a very hard time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to identify yeah. their role. And eventually, is it the right hat for me or I should give it to someone else? Why someone else? Why that one? You know, it, it's an endless process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it seems like it also provides a way for people to begin to uh, relate around these different kinds of Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Again, to know the unconscious, uh, another activity, uh, uh, that one. It's, it's a fantastic, it's essential activity. So I did it like you know, a few times in very large groups, like we're talking about 80 people. So there are like uh, two rows of chairs and people are sitting next to each other. And then uh, we have four questions. I'm not going to say what are those questions. And each question you have one minute. So I give you one minute. One row is a listener, one row is a talker. You, you just say, and then they move chairs, and then we, we switch, then the, another four minutes. So the whole activity would take about 10 to 12 minutes, something like that. But such an existential activity. We say that time off, people are still talking. People can't talk. Uh, people uh, good, are good listeners, but not, but not good talkers or speakers. The other way around. Some, sometimes, there's a pause. Sometimes there's like what is not said. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, but also, you know, the whole understanding of the concept of time is limited. 
and creates an existential, usually I do that in the close to the end of the group. So creates an existential uh, crisis, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It imitates the feeling of this and I. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it, what was coming to mind is kind of like interruption and uh, the loss of something that was beginning to emerge or it didn't even have the space to fully begin to emerge. I would imagine it would just um, be a way of uh, creating all of those different feelings and tensions. Right. So they get angry at me sometimes. But also the whole point is like, uh, be comfortable with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, we are mortal beings. And yes, we're not going to accomplish everything we want. Right. And this is uh, what we relate to most when we're connecting or trying to. Yes. And uh, the, the other part of it is also you're never going to be the master of unconscious. Sorry. Because very often people think about unconscious. I have seen it. They're good metaphors. I can understand and relate to meditation. Maybe I, that's something I thought the same way. They, 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 they come and the unconscious is, is a, like a locked chest, a treasure box or something like that. And they open it. They're going to sort it out with the help of therapies and then done. Bang. The, the, the work is over. No, you're in a closet. And you, you have a flashlight. And you can see some items and that's it. And you keep going and there's no, you know, there's no end to that closet and no end to all. And you're never going to be able to see all the objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like it's the opposite in some ways. Instead of it getting narrowed down, maybe the more we lean into the unconscious, the more expansive it becomes. We really realize the, the, the extent to which there's be so much that we never fully understand and, and how exciting. Right. You know, our conscious is an island in the ocean of unconscious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, brings me to uh, what's actually kind of a final question, which I often like to have on the on the podcast, which is just what is your current edge? What is uh, a current area of, of group leadership that's sort of exciting you most or um, thrilling you? Right. Um, I think that this is, for me, it's very connected again to the art of listening um, and not being rigid, you know. Uh, i give you an example. Right now, people who are coming to my group, they should have a year or two years of uh, uh, group experience. Uh, or, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not group experience, but uh, th- therapy experience. And the, my, my reasoning for that is if you're coming quite... Uh, inexperienced to this uh, process, you're going to get hurt because people are in a different way of understanding things and you, you have a very hard time to connect and then you, you might get hurt and that's not the whole point. Uh, and you might not be able to benefit from it. Um, but I'm, I'm always thinking like how much of that is also my anxiety of bringing people that I don't know that much or, you know, I don't connect with. So I'm thinking like at some point, can I do a group of consists of people that uh, basically have no uh, uh, therapy experience or something and we do something analytical together? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know that's, a, that's a challenge for the therapist. It requires significant amount of uh, flexibility and empathy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and attunement to kind of where they are and to what's going to be possible in the relationship. Right. And uh, can, can you go to those places? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like uh, when I'm doing like uh, training groups at uh, our annual meeting, uh, I, I found that no, people uh, 
still get like to the point like this year we thought that maybe we should put something like it's really meant for people who have some experience in group and everything because I see that people get hurt uh, in spite of my best effort and they are really disoriented. This kind of a work uh, is not something they have familiarity with and they are not being taught or anything like that. So it can be quite overwhelming. Well, and I, I think it also really reminds me of how important it is to have a relationship that can uh, function as a container for these kinds of things. And if that relationship isn't there, then it can just be uh, too much. Too much can get stirred. That is, um, can't really be integrated. We need the, the relationship to be able to do that. Right. But also, I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but what's, what's you're implying that that relationship needs time to develop and grow. And you're right. But can we have relationships on a spot? Mm -hmm. Can can we have relationships uh, within like six hours? Mm -hmm. The process. I, I I saw that it's possible, but not for everybody, and mm -hmm. not for, and I would say that not for everybody. That includes my own limitation. Right, right, absolutely. There's a lot there. I'd love to be able to explore that more, but I'm aware we're kind of coming up to our own time boundary. And I was actually wondering if you'd say a little bit about if a, if a listener is feeling really engaged by what you're saying and they wanted to follow up with you more, how can um, listeners uh, reach you? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite accessible. Uh, I have a website that um, they can send me emails, my first name, last name at gmail.com or my first name, last name at insightfulattachment.com, which is like my, uh, my, my website. And, uh, yeah, like, and I'm part of the board so they can communicate with me through the FCGPS. And, uh, yeah. And I, I, to, uh, Angela, I had like, uh, students that they reached me and we went for a coffee and they, we talked about an article process and an article training and things like that. Wonderful. And if uh, you want to know more about Larry and his approach to group, this upcoming training group would be a great way to uh, meet him and to experience more. So the title is How to Play in Process Groups, a workshop for utilizing psychoanalytically and existentially oriented activities to enhance cohesion and process groups. And information and registration is available on the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society website, fcgps.org. So, Larry, I want to thank you again so much for being on this podcast. Really enjoyed interviewing you, and we're looking forward to um, having you at more of our events. Pleasure is mine. Thank you very much, Andrew. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.